G'day, g'day, guys. Now, before we dive into today's show, I want to ask you a few quick questions. Are you looking to take your investing career to the next level? Are you wanting an accountability partner who will push you to achieve your goals? Are you needing to surround yourself with successful investors and entrepreneurs in order to up your game and take control of your life? Well, if you've answered yes to any of those questions, I am super pumped and excited to announce that I'm starting the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. This mastermind is a group of highly motivated, abundance-orientated, hand-selected hustlers and entrepreneurs who are ready to take that next step in their investing career. We are now taking applications for the next group of champions. If you're interested to find out more, then email me at info, that's I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com and put in the subject line, The Syndicator Incubator. Being a part of this mastermind group, you will have unlimited access to both myself and my business partner, Andrew Campbell, and you will understand how we have been able to build a portfolio of over 1,200 units worth over $120 million in under 24 months, and we've achieved financial freedom in the process. There are once a month mastermind calls with the group and a yearly conference where you will learn from the best in the business. So what are you waiting for? There are only limited spots, so get your application pack by emailing me at info at And remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Hope is not a strategy. So, so when you buy for appreciation, you're, you're hoping that somewhere in the future, somebody would be willing to pay more than you're willing to pay today. Um, everybody that made that decision in 2006 lost their shirt. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S. podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the U.S., how they've created financial freedom massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show.
Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Joseph Goslin. Joseph is a multifamily investment specialist at Eureka Business Group. He's the leading group acquisitions of over $30 million in real estate and providing asset management services to a portfolio of over 550 units and growing. Joseph is a former lieutenant in the Israeli Defense Force, the IDF, uh, with over 17 years of leadership experience in the software industry, 12 of which have been working for publicly traded companies such as GameStop and JCPenney, which really enhanced his business acumen, analytical skills, and the big picture perspective all skills which he has leveraged to maximize his efficiency in the real estate business world here in the United States. I'm really pumped and excited to have him on the show today to share his incredible experience and his insight. But enough of that, I mean, let's get him out here. G'day, Joseph. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Hey, Reed. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Mate, my pleasure. Um, I saw a little bit in the green room, we're talking about your background and uh, Really interesting background because my wife is uh, has been to Birthright and she's from she's not from Israel but she she was Jewish and she's uh, been back there a few times and she tells me all the time that I need to go to Tel Aviv but um, but before we dive into Tel Aviv do you want to rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid Yeah so um, probably was when I was thirteen in the summer between summer break um, I I grew up in a family that was a single parent and I wanted to contribute to the that family income so I went to work um, I found a job uh, in a uh, toilet paper uh, factory where we kind of uh, manufactured the toilet paper and and wrapped it and I was loading it to the truck and unloading it on the route and I was doing whatever I was needed to do at 13 years of age right yes sir a true paper route as I speak oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't think about that <laughs> <laughs> paper roll route, right? So um, awesome stuff. Well, tell me, you know, for those listeners out there who don't know, I know firsthand that the Israeli government requires is Israeli population to do two years of military um, school. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that has shaped you into, you know, where you, your path towards entrepreneurialism and, and, and your company that you have today? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in Israel, like you said, it's mandatory service. Everybody, when they hit 18, uh, almost everybody, and then uh, men do three years, uh, women do two, and if you volunteer to go to officer school, then you have an extra year regardless of gender. So I was an officer, um, I was in logistics, I got through the ranks, uh, uh, and I um, got out of the military after four years of service as a second lieutenant, and really... Um, I, I think a lot of the leadership experience that I've learned by commanding soldiers, and, and at some point I had a platoon of about 100 uh, uh, soldiers underneath me, uh, it really helps you understand responsibility, it really helps you understand what it means waking up before the first soldier and going to sleep after the last one. Uh, it helps you understand the intricacies of, of leading through sometimes through influence over um, just authority, because everybody thinks military, you lead through authority, but um, it's not necessarily the same thing, because as an officer, sometimes you have enlisted people that have a 30-year career in, their, uh, uh, in the military that are under your command. So as a 19, 20, 21-year-old kid, now you've got to command a 50-year-old uh, um, enlisted man. Uh, um, a master chief or something like that that have been in the military for the last 30 something years so so you can't just come in and use force or, or use authority you gotta 
work influence into uh, uh, your leadership skills as well. So I think I learned a lot from the military uh, um, and, and my leadership skills really grew over there. How many, given that uh, I would say Israel is, a, is of the a first world you know, status, how many countries do you know still have requirement enrollment like Israel does? I don't think there's many in, in, in the first world nations, right? Uh, very little in the first world. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, such, it's such an interesting thing that, you know, growing up up in Australia and probably people listening to this show growing up here in the United States to to require everyone once you, it's once you leave high school, right, that you go straight in for two years and then you go on to do university after that, correct? Yes. So it gives right. you such an, it's, it's, it's a really incredible path because I've met a lot of Israeli people from who, who have been backpacking around the world. They've, they've, you know, they do the two years and they get out before they go back into university. Um, and they're all just like so hungry to get out. But it must give you some pretty incredible skill sets. Um, you know, I think you just talked to a little bit about that. But what's your sort of what's your sort of take on it? How, how have your other friends viewed being forced to go into the military at such a young age? Yeah, so, so there's a few things to it, right? Um, one of it is Israel is in a situation where it's needed. It, it, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's an existential thing. If we don't have a military, there will be no Israel. Right. Uh, so you go defend the country, you go defend your home. It's your parents on the line. It's not you're going to fight a war that is not your country. So, so, so that is a different mentality. Um, the other thing is everybody else do that. So it's not like you're being forced, right? Your dad was in the military, your uncle is in the military, your cousins are in the military, your friends are in the military. It, it's just something everybody do. Uh, so, um, a lot of us don't look at it as being forced to go to the military. Uh, right. No, you, you, you're right. I, I probably used the wrong wrong choice of words. But I, I, all the Israeli folks that I've de- dealt with through business, they're very they because they have come through that military training. It seems that they're very straight to the point. They're very direct, and and I like that being Australian because I'm very direct myself. And I, I think it brings it cuts out the the fluff and the BS. Right. It's just like we, we, we're getting into it. You, you're either you're either pulling a leg or you pull them a chain or you're not, and we've got to do business or we're not going to do business. Like it's it's none none of this sort of courting you know relationship it's none of, the, none of the fluff as i said it's straight into um the hard numbers and like are we going to do business does this make sense for both of us and and if not let's move on to the next person well right? this is definitely a military thing right because when things are on the line you don't have time for fluff it's kind of like mm-hmm. you got to say what you need when you need it and get it done fast because there's literally lives on the line so uh being a military society where almost everybody have been in the military, are in the military, or will be in the military, right? It, it, it's ingrained in the society. So that's why most Israelis you'll meet will be very straight to the point, straight shooters, assertive, uh, and, and going through things. Um, the other thing that I always say about military service, and that's true to the States as well, or any other military service that I've seen, um, is you send boys, you get men. Mm. Right here in the United States, 18, 19, 20 year old, they're still kids. They didn't get out of the house. They didn't understand what's going on. But uh, when you get a, a rifle at 18 and you get the, the, the in situations where you might take a, another human's life, it makes you grow up really fast. So sure. uh, the responsibility, the, the, um, the seriousness of the situation kind of help you mature a lot faster. Um, and you see that uh, in Israel, it's hard to really differentiate, but over here in the States, 
you see a clear difference between a 24-year-old that got out of the military service and a 24 years old that was not in military service. You see, right. No, I definitely can say that for sure. So, so you send boys, you get men. Awesome, awesome stuff. So now, tell, walk me through the the transition of coming, you know, going into out of the the military into the into you know workforce. I don't know into the workforce, I should say, and then the transition to the United States. How did you come here? What's that journey look like? Yeah, so when I grew up, I kind of grew up with the old story of go to school, get good grades, then military, and then go to the university, get your degrees, and hopefully you'll find a job that you'll stay there until pension. Uh, that, that's just my mother's mentality and, and the way she was raised and the world that she knew. But the world is not like that anymore. Um, so I, I went into this path and I graduated with my software engineering degree. And I started working as a software engineer in a company that happened to have branches in multiple places uh, around the world. And I knew I want to relocate to an environment where I can afford more for my kids, where can I, I can give more, a better life quality to my family. And it was um, the United States or Australia uh, that were both on the table. Um, I felt more comfortable coming here to the States because we have some family over here, uh, not in the immediate uh, area, but in the country. So yeah, it's still better than nothing. Uh, so uh, we went on with relocating to the United States through my software job. That was right. 2007. And, and talk to me about how that, that must have been quite a shift, you know, moving halfway across the world into a, a new country that just you didn't know, you know, had you, had you been here before, before you moved here? I've been for a, a few short visits, uh, um, but nothing, you know, too lengthy. Uh, a couple of weeks here, a couple of weeks there, uh, maybe two or three times. Uh, but um, the Israeli environment, the Israeli society is very much uh, um, ingrained or interlaced with the American culture. Mm, so, right. so we watch the same movies, we see the same shows, we listen to the same <laughs> music. So it's kind of like it's, um, it wasn't that much of a culture shock for me to do that transition. Plus, um, relocating to a branch of an Israeli company was definitely mm. a, a good cushion to kind of land on because there's a lot of other Israelis that did that before me. Right. It's a sort of a bit of a soft landing, right? Not just coming here and you know, trying to make it happen and look for a job and get housing and get your, you know, your, your kids into school and all that sort of stuff, which is, you know, a, a lot of people do it that way. So having that soft landing coming through a company that you already knew and being surrounded by other Israelis from, you know, your, your home and, and similar humor, similar way of thinking, similar way of life, it's, it's probably a way that, you know, helps ease the transition. And I know from personally, like, Coming from Australia, I now have a great uh, bunch of Aussie mates here because we're all, we have a similar thought process, right? And you, you sort of seek that out as being an expat in, in a foreign country. Um, so, so tell me about the journey into real estate entrepreneur. You know, coming from a software engineer, it's such a it's a, such a big shift to going in and now running your own business. Yeah, so um, the the employee to a, a business definitely was a big shift, but. Uh, one thing I noticed, and it's something that I still haven't explained, uh, found an explanation for, uh, is that there is a huge correlation between software people and real estate investors. 
Uh, there's a lot of software people that really love investing in real estate. Um, my theory is that it's got to do with the fact that real estate is more predictable and easy to analyze and, and um, you can see factor X impacting result Y uh, mm-hmm. um, versus stocks where, you know, company could be doing great and their rumor comes in and the stock plummets uh, um, and, and then, you know, nothing happened really. Uh, so, so, so that's really, I think there's a correlation there. Uh, but I've always been interested in real estate. I read Rich Dad Poor Dad like everybody else uh, when I was uh, uh, in college. And uh, we had an opportunity to do exact, become an accidental landlord really back home where my wife and I got married and we just bought a, a, an apartment or a condo that was like four bedrooms. And we were just the two of us, no kids. And it was huge because we were living in the one bedroom apartment that we were renting. So it was kind of like, okay, do we move into this huge thing and start paying a lot more bills or do we go the rich dad, poor dad route, lease it out and stay in our little one. And then when you do that and you know, rent comes in and you pay the mortgage and you pay the taxes and you pay the expenses and there's still something left at the end of the month, you go, huh, there's something to that real estate thing, right? That's how you start catching the real estate bug. Um, and then we moved to the States in 07, which was like the absolute bottom where everything started blowing up all over around here and my wife and i recognize that it's a huge opportunity it's probably the best opportunity we will have in our lifetime so we sold that apartment back home moved the money over here uh, um, and started investing Uh, and because it's a new country with new rules and new ways of doing things uh, we both went out and got licensed as real estate uh, agents just so we'll understand the environment and understand the rules and regulation and, and the process. So um, that's how we got started. Um, awesome. That's, that's such a, it's such a great story because I think you, and I want to dive into the differences between the two countries because I think it's really important for, for American listeners to hear just the state of Israel and, and, and it's, it's the state of the real estate there and if cash flow exists versus here in the United States. But I think that the falling uh, sort of, excuse my language, ass over backwards into the, the real estate game that you bought this condo, uh, you didn't know what the hell to do with it, but you, you decided to rent it out and you realized that you had cash flow. I think that's really a good lesson, but something that you um, were able to execute in, in Israel. So So maybe let's talk a little bit about that first, you know, the, the investment space in Israel versus the United States? And did you see when you came in 2007, was there a big contrast between the prices of what you could buy something in Israel for versus the prices you could buy here in the United States? Yeah. So um, for American listeners, right, if you want to understand the Israeli real estate, think New York, Brooklyn, or California, LA. Um, Urban, core urban, most of the country is, it's, it's uh, three, four or more stories apartment buildings uh, that are, it's condo buildings, basically, condominiums, and it's individual ownership. And Israel is super tiny space-wise, so there's not a lot of um, single-family homes. Single-family home is really very, very expensive in Israel, just like it would be if you're looking for a single-family home in Beverly Hills. Right. 
or um, there are still a few kind of singles scattered around in, in uh, Manhattan and Governor Island over there in New York, right? Uh, good luck purchasing one of those. So, so, so that's really, Israel is, is, is like that, right? Um, the single family homes are super expensive. Everybody buys an apartment. And I'm guessing it's a remnant of the Holocaust. There's that mentality of buying higher, in higher, desi it's more desirable than renting. Um, here in the United States, it, people don't care buy or rent. They actually have a preference towards rent for a million different reasons. But uh, um, that's really where we're, we're different. Uh, Cost-wise, it's a lot more expensive to buy a property in Israel. Like a lot more expensive. So it, it, we're talking... I don't know, 15 annual salaries uh, um, wow. or, or something like that in order to get uh, um, a, a large enough uh, for a family housing, right? So when we moved over here, we were kind of, first of all, we moved to Texas. So, <laughs> so we didn't move to California or LA or, or, or Miami. So the cost of living here is a lot cheaper. The cost of real estate here is a lot cheaper. And that really helped us out with kind of make the decision if we sell this thing over there we can bring the money over here and buy more than what we could get over there uh, and i think the only reason that uh, we were able to get a cash flow situation back home with the cost is um we got help uh, my mom helped with, with uh, um, the down payment and and we saved money both of us uh, while we were working to, to put the down payment. And that, that's how we got a little bit of a cash flow. It wasn't a lot of a cash flow, but because we were living in a one bedroom apartment, at, you know, well below our means, it, it was, it was a great opportunity. Yeah. I think you, you highlighted and illustrated very well how the Israeli market is like the, the New York's and the Manhattan, uh, the New York's and the LA's of the world. Uh, high um, appreciation markets, land is tight, um, things got to have to go vertical. There's a lot, the, the demand is higher than the supply. It's very similar to Australia. Uh, Australia has a, I, I, call, I tell people, think of the LA housing market across the entire country. Um, also, combined with that is that we have a, a lower population compared to the United States and we can only inhabit a certain amount of our country because the rest is desert. Um, similar with Israel, your, your, supply, uh, your demand is very high, but the supply is very constrained. Uh, you, have a, you, have, you have a population in a very small area, hence prices go through the roof. And, and so when I say to people, you know, people are concerned that multifamily cap rates have come from seven seven and a half to eight percent historically now they're down at five five to five and a half it's still such a good cap rate compared to what you would buy commercial real estate in israel in tel aviv uh, or you would buy in um in australia in sydney or melbourne similar to the la and new york markets where cap rates are two three percent um i think that's such a good thing just to hit on because a lot of international investors come to the united states particularly secondary markets like the texas markets um, with the with the fact that they can buy their money goes a lot further, but they also they get a, they get a really pretty moderate cap rate um, on that you know on that purchase, and hence they can cash flow a lot better. Do, you, do you, any comments on that? Yeah, no, it, it's kind of like L.A., New York, Miami, Seattle. These are Chicago. all Chicago. Yeah, these are all 
appreciation markets, right? Go buy something in California that cash flows. It doesn't exist. Right? If you leverage it, you're not going to see any cash flow. So that's really the same way in Israel. Don't get me wrong. It's expensive. But if you bought something 10 years ago, it appreciated a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's just an appreciation market, just like any other appreciation market in the United States. And so how do you, t- how do you combine that now with investing in a tertiary market or secondary market like Texas, where the appreciation might not be as great, but the cash flow is better? How do you sort of weigh the two up? So for me, um, hope is not a strategy. So, so when you buy for appreciation, you're, you're hoping that somewhere in the future, somebody would be willing to pay more than you're willing to pay today. Um, everybody that made that decision in 2006 lost their share. That's simple. So do you have a crystal ball uh, to know if the market is going to dive tomorrow or there's a two, three more years? I don't have a crystal ball. So the only thing I know how to measure is today, if I buy it, am I going to cash flow? And if I'm going to cash flow, then how much? Uh, um, and, and that's the only thing I can measure. I can't guess what's going to happen tomorrow, right? Because here's the thing. If you bought something in, uh, that is worth a million dollars in 2010 and you paid a million two, people would look at you and say, you're crazy. You paid $1.2 million. This is worth a million. Smash cat to 2017, it's worth 2.6, and all oh, suddenly you're a genius. You were crazy then, you're a genius now, right? But the fact is, you were just lucky. Uh, but if you bought uh, a million dollar property in 2006 and you paid 1.2, smash cat to 2009, it's worth $600,000. Now, not only you were crazy, you were also stupid. Right. So, but the reality is, no, you weren't either. You were just unlucky because you, you trusted hope and hope is not a strategy. Were- well, you bring up a very good point. And, and I want to ask you, did you did you were you tracking the Israeli markets when it you know, you moved out here in 2007, when everything when excuse my language should hit the fan in 2008? Did did the Israeli market take a take a dive? No, uh, um, still haven't, by the way. And, and I, will, I will add Australia has not either. So let's let's keep in mind here that America w- took a dive, <laughs> housing wise, and and just keep it in perspective because a lot of other international countries, like even I know in Europe and in London, they didn't take as much of a hit as what the American markets did, based on the predatory lending that they did to lead us to to bad debt. So we'll, yeah. we'll get into that in a minute. But but I just wonder, yeah, the, these does these you're saying the Israeli market did not get, take a dive as much as the U.S. market did in two thousand and eight. At all. At all. Yeah. Well, that's nuts. Well, but here's the thing. No, it's not nuts because you, you hit it on the head when you said it's, it's the lending. The people that got this country in trouble the last time, and in my opinion, are the same guys that get this country in trouble now, right? Right. Is the banks. It's when somebody puts a super optimistic underwriting on the table and the bank is willing to bankroll that. That mm-hmm. is what happens. Back home right now in 2019, if you want to get a mortgage, you can only leverage up to 60%. You can't leverage 80%. Back in 2004 and five, if you wanted to buy $100,000, you could get $120,000 to, you know, we'll throw in some for renovation. And if you want a new SUV, why not? Let's put it in the mortgage, right? Um, 
and we I start seeing the flags coming in these days, like we saw them last time with emails from mortgage lenders saying zero down or stated income and, and all the kind of situations where uh, got people in trouble. And that's really, I think, what was the downfall back then. And, and you bring up a good point, like there's all, you know, the dot Frank stuff that came in. It was, you know, rules and regulations around trying to be better with the lending sphere. And now we've got some murmurs from people saying, well, it's too restrictive and loans aren't getting done. Well, aren't we just going to go and history repeats itself? Like we just go back to that being silly lending and, you know, people, oh, you got a pulse, you can, you can fog a mirror, here you go. Yeah, and, and you know, sometimes you got to protect the people from themselves. Uh, the, uh, what brought this country to its knees is the subprime lending. It's the people that shouldn't have gotten a loan and got a loan anyways. It's the same people that go out and buy a new car when they can barely pay rent. And, and you know, just a short story kind of to illustrate that um, we bought a 22-unit apartment building um, a few years ago. And when we buy an apartment building, we walk every unit as part of the inspection process. And I'm walking this, uh, um, you know, uh, property, 22 units. Every single one of those tenants have a bigger TV than mine, but I'm the one building, <laughs> buying the building. Right. Right. And it's yep. not like I have a 14 inch TV. Okay. So, so that's just priorities. That's mm -hmm. what it is. And, and understanding finances. Nobody teaches finances here. Uh, yeah. I, I think, sorry. Yeah. You, you, you know, you I was just going to jump in, sorry to jump in there, but I think you bring up a good point. Um, but also, it's it's sort of it's a it's a double edged sword there, right? Like you have the wants and needs of the American dream being shoved down everyone's throat of like you need to own this, you need to own that. Consumerism one oh you know one oh one just getting pumped into you know the market of the you know I've always viewed America as just like why do you need? I, I remember one time a classic example of like I, I came to the United States back in two thousand and eight or something, and I was watching a television commercial about a hamburger, and you get a hamburger with bacon on it, but it was doused in brown sugar, and I was like, why do you need that? Like it's sort of like why do you need? And, it, and it's an example of like why do you need the fifty eight or seventy two or one hundred and eight inch TV? You know, like the whole, we need more, we, can, we, we, we buy, you know, we get an iPhone, we chuck it out, we get a TV, we chuck it out, we get a bigger one. And it's, I don't know, it's something about the American psyche about keep, keep buying, right? Keep buying, keep buying, keep buying. And so I think there's, we're all sucked into that with the, you know, the, the little carrot at the end of the stick. But we're also, the, on the other hand, you've got the people, the policymakers who are making it easier for people to get loans, to get really cheap financing and to essentially build up all this debt and all of a sudden it crashes. So I think there's a double-edged sword and there's, there's responsibilities on both sides of the fence. Yes, there's a financial education piece, but secondly, you know, the, the, the shark lending and uh, you've got to buy this TV, you've got to buy this new car, and, but you can't even afford to live in your apartment. Um, the, the, got, the, you've got to meet somewhere in between. I don't think it's all just the consumer's fault. Uh, so they just wanted to you know, throw that my, my two cents in there and get your opinion on that because... Being an international person, you probably think a little bit the same as what I do about just like why you shake your head at some of the things that you see here and how cheap you can get. Like, why do you need that? <laughs> yeah, and, and and there's a big difference between need and want, right? And a exactly, lot, a lot of society right now is running on want uh, versus on need, and mm -hmm. and sometimes you got to take a step back and say, okay, 
what do I need? What do I want? And how do I get there? And um, yeah, at some point, I understand putting regulations, but the American concept of capitalism is if you're stupid, you're gonna uh, uh, you're gonna fall, and if you're you're success, smart and you can make it, you'll make it. Uh, uh, that's what make this country great. It, it's competitive. It's uh, uh, in, ingenious, right? It's in, innovative uh, things to do, and that usually happens. But uh, um, but yeah, the banks let but then, a lot of. But then you on the flip side, you get people consuming and stupid things coming out with loan wise, and then. That oh I need to be I the, the want and the need thing that you had like you just said about, like, I need the four houses I need oh, sorry the four houses the four bedrooms I need the landscape I need the pool I need the car but I can't afford to pay for it <laughs> right so yeah it's it's it's, it's interesting concept tell me a little bit about your what you're building right now at Eureka I think it's, it's such an awesome thing to do and and we, we we sort of glossed over a little bit that transition from. Uh, you know, uh, visa, you know, non-immigrant uh, Im- into being your own, um, your own boss, because that's that I've, I've been down that path as well. So I'm sure we've got a lot in common. Yeah. So, so I came in on software, I got licensed, but I was still working in software. Um, and then uh, over time, you know, you spend your time and then you apply for a green card. And, and I was lucky enough to have a company that was willing to sponsor a green card. And once you have a green card, Clocks start ticking, five years later, you apply for citizenship. Uh, But throughout that, I was having a uh, software career and I was investing in real estate. And uh, even though we were licensed, we didn't do a lot with the license, just our transactions and maybe a few friends and family kind of that we wanted to help. Uh, But we really, really fast realized that we don't like the residential real estate business because... (laughs) It's too emotional. There's too much fluff. It's kind of like, well, I don't like this house because the door is red. Well, yeah, I'll find you a new door. It's a $500,000 house and it's a $130 door, right? Uh, um, that's the kind of things that I, I just couldn't handle. Uh, um, I'm a very analytic, business-oriented numbers guy. Uh, so that's really where in somewhere in 2015, uh, in conjunction with some of my single family rentals generating a lot of CapEx expenses at the same time. I said, okay, that, that's not scalable. Uh, what can we do? And uh, being an engineer, I did a very thorough uh, analysis of every asset class out there and landed on multifamily. And, and we can talk about the reasons why I think multifamily is the best asset class to get into. Uh, but, but that, that was the decision, and then that's how we started uh, acquiring. And the, some of the acquisitions included bringing investors from the outside and raising capital for it, and, and buying larger apartment complexes. And some of it was uh, um, um, building the brokerage to handle the commercial real estate and the multifamily specifically, uh, in, in a way that created a unique environment for us where we can offer the brokerage customers a lot of the experience we gained on the acquisition. So we've done different kind of loans and we bought different sizes of properties and we went through the process multiple times. So now when we have a buyer, we can help them through the process. So when we have a seller, we can help them maximize the proceeds uh, from, from selling their property. 
Interesting. No, I think it's it's such a great concept you've got into because you've also maximized your um, business ecosystem, right? You can help them on both the, the entry side and also the investment side, which I think is really having a double prong approach really will recession proof your business, I think. So, you know, um, but tell me, you know, you, you mentioned about the best asset class to invest in multifamily as you have seen, you know, firsthand that 2007, the cap rates were at a different stage than what they are today. You're also investing in the tertiary secondary markets, which we talk about Texas and we talk about the differences between you know Israel and Australia versus the secondary markets. So where, in your opinion, where's it all headed? Like, can we can keep compressing these cap rates? Can they keep going to three, four percent in these, you know, Dallas's and Texas's and North Carolinas of the world? Like, what, what's your what's your thought process, or what's your opinion on that? So I'm a little bit of an odd duck in, in in the environment when I talk about cap rate, right? So you're talking about purchase cap rates, and in my opinion, purchase cap rates are irrelevant. And I try to help a lot of investors and buyers understand that. Um, if I offer you a skyscraper uh, downtown Sydney for a million dollars, are you buying it? Yeah, for sure. Awesome. What if it's vacant? You still buying it? Hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a zero cap rate. It's a right. horrible deal. Right. No, it's not. It's a skyscraper for a million dollars. Get me two of those, please. Right. 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 So the cap rate, when you look at the purchase and the actuals, is not really relevant. What's relevant is what value can you generate out of this property. If I buy it for a four cap, but I can make it an eight cap uh, with a, some capex investment. Then I got an eight cap asset. I didn't get a four cap asset. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because I think that I, I see a lot of people, and, and even when I educate my investors as well, is like we're buying it at X cap rate, but you have to look at like look at the stabilized cap rate. What you know, maybe look at year two or year three, and divide that NOI by your purchase price, and you'll probably be more in the mid sixes, right, and more towards a normalized cap rate. What are you are you educating people on that? Looking at that sort of year two or year three NOI versus the going in yeah so so we're actually uh doing a full projection all the way through seven and tenure uh because we're always long-term hold the period um and like i said it, it comes down to um the owner's pnl is the owner's pnl if the owner's brother-in-law is the pest control guy and he gets it for for cost i'm gonna have to pay retail mm-hmm uh, but um, here's a real life example from, from uh, um, last week. I got, one of my clients bought a 20 unit property uh, in the same city. We own about 500 units, right? And he calls me and say, "Hey, how many, I, I need to replace an AC unit, and I think this quote is too high." And I reach out to my team, and I realized that for for me it was very high. And I realized that yeah, of course it's too high because I only pay for parts. My AC certified maintenance guys do the work, but he has to get a retail AC technician to do the work. So um, my scale allows me to have a cheaper cost of doing things than the guy that has 20 units. At the same time, I know a guy that owns 2,500 units in the same town. His cost of doing things is half as much as what I pay. (laughs) Yeah. So, So, if I'm looking at the, the big guy PNL, I'll never be able to achieve that. It might show eight cap and then I'll walk in and it'll be a four cap because I have to pay a lot more for expenses. 
I'm interrupting this episode to remind you guys about the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. If you want to take your investing career to the next level and surround yourself with the best in the business, then apply today. Spots are filling up fast. I'm only taking a handful of people for the next round, so get your application by emailing me at info, I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com. Remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Now, back into the show. So then how do you talk about the exit in 10 years' time? Like, so if you're buying it at a four cap, are you, you've you got to, you know, we've got to put a yardstick somewhere. It's a, you know, an Excel spreadsheet is not, is not a crystal ball, but you have to assume an exit cap rate in, in terms of getting an exit price. So are you using an expansion on the going in cap rate? And, and, and just to all the listeners out there, Joseph was saying that, you have to look at the owners. The current owner's PL may be different to your PL, and hence you might be picking up at a four, but you might be able to stabilize at a six or a seven. So, what are you then coming year seven, year 10? What are you choosing the cap rate to be? And is it based off that going in cap rate, or is it based on more like a market prediction in, in, in X period of time later? Well, neither actually. So, what I do is I look at we buy all value add. Right. Right. So the entry cap rate will always be lower than the current stabilized cap rate. So what I do is I'm looking at if this property was fully stabilized right now, today, what would be the cap rate? Let's mm-hmm. say it's six. Then I take that and I add a full point. So I'll, I'll uh, predict a seven cap rate. Uh, and that gives me, for, for example, if you're looking at a $10 million deal going out down seven, 10 years, this could mean a million dollars that you take off the table just by adding that. Sure. Yeah. So, so we'll go on the conservative side. I know some uh, sponsors that only add a quarter point or half a point. Some of them don't do any changes. They take the stabilized cap rate and keep it the same, which I think is very bold uh, or, or optimistic. But then again, I can't prove them wrong. I don't have a crystal ball. Maybe it will stay flat for the next 10 years. Right, right. No, it, but it's also the where is I think it's got to, you've got to come into what you were saying about the the market cap rate if the asset was stabilized, right? And and then growing it from that market cap rate stabilization. I'll also add that, and this is getting quite complex now, but with the transition, particularly in Texas, and I know this because I'm invested there, the tax rates are going through the roof, and you buying a cap rate. You buying an asset with a new adjusted tax rate, you're going to have a different NOI and hence a different entry cap and then hence a different exit cap than the person is in place today. So keep that in mind and I'm going to repeat it again. It's called a reversion cap rate and you need to look at understand what that is because you're not comparing apples to apples. If you look at their P&L and they've owned it for 20 years, they're going to have a lot lower tax basis than I'm going to buy it in 2019. So I need to adjust my quote unquote NOI of the first year based on their current operations versus my tax rate that I'll probably have to pay because the value has gone up and in the transition. I know Texas is a non-disclosure state. However, they always seem to bloody find out. <laughs> and they always come knocking at your door and say, hey, it's now 95% of the purchase price and you paid you know, $7 million more than what she paid for or the person paid for 10 years ago. So you owe, you know, you owe an extra... $400,000 in taxes, that's going to have a huge impact on your NOI and have a huge impact on your cap rate. So just keep that in mind. I just want to take that. And do you have any comments on that, you know, about the reversion cap rates of, of adjusting it for, for taxes? Yeah, I'm just going to pull the Texan in me and tell everybody how Texas is really awesome. 
Not, all, <laughs> not just by being a non-disclosure state where they can just know your, your sale price. They're going to have to kind of guess it. Uh, but we just had a, a state tax law uh, voted in that uh, property taxes cannot go up by more than three and a half percent without uh, voters' approval. So uh, um, Texas is awesome. I can't invest in Texas. Well, it, it's, it's interesting you say that because I'll counter that by saying that I have looked at three assets in the last two weeks, and I put I put I put NOIs on it. The whisper price is less than what the county has assessed it for which means that you're paying, if you know how to do the calculation, it's, it's a percentage multiplied by the mill rate multiplied by the purchase price, which means that percentage is over 100%. So you've got to go and then argue with the, with the county. And so the way in which you argue with them, say, and, and this is what all, a lot of counties I'm seeing are doing, they're, they're just jacking your price and saying, hey, it's worth this, prove it to me otherwise. And all our, all our tax attorneys are saying, well, the way you prove it to them, give me a bloody freaking closing statement and they'll take 95% of that. So there, you know, I love I love your optimism about Texas, but the fact is they they don't have an income tax. They got to get it from somewhere, and they're being really aggressive. I know Bear County and in Travis County and Austin are being extremely aggressive because I've also seen law coming into place about your maximized year on year growth that the, the counties can charge. So they're all trying to flood the market and say, hey, now you're now worth forty million bucks when you're actually only paying thirty million dollars for it. And so, and then they and they they just say prove it. And, and so the only way you prove it based on our lawyer's recommendation is give them the, give them the closing statement. They then know what you paid for it. So it's, it's a real dichotomy now. And, and, and this is why a lot of the deals I'm seeing in, in my space, the sort of B, B plus area, is not penciling because you can't, the, the taxes are doing these, you know, you, you know, loop, you know, loop to loop sort of roller coaster. And you're like, where the hell is it? It's like throwing a dart at a double. Where's it going to land up? So um, any comments on that? Because I, do, I just wanted to, I wanted to be the, the opposite, the, the the devil's advocate, because I've definitely seen stuff where it's like that's not worth what the county's saying it's worth. Well, but that's easy because there are a lot of really good tax people that can go to fight for you, and every time we employed one of those, they, they justified their fees. Right? They only get paid if they uh, reduce your tax liability. Right? Uh, so, so uh, the good ones can really make a big difference. Um, but um, you're right. Underwriting is super important that when you look at the property and you underwrite it, you underwrite that tax jump because it will happen. There's no doubt it will happen. It's just a matter of when it will happen. And some counties are more aggressive than others, right? Travis, Dallas, Collin County. Oh, my God. Collin County is one of the most aggressive ones out there. Uh, but the secondary Texas markets are a little less aggressive because they know they're going to have to work with people to bring investments into town. So, uh, um, so in certain areas, we'll do 85% of, of purchase price. In some, uh, some areas, like Dallas or, or Colleen, right, we definitely go to 95% uh, because we know that's what's going to happen really, really fast. They don't sit on it. They just go right at it. Um, and in, in case people try to figure out, well, how do they know how much you pay? You're going to have a loan. And that loan is yeah, supported with the county, so the county will know how much loan you have. They'll reverse engineer that. Yep, exactly. And then you you, you hit the nail right on the head that that's exactly how they, they assess the, the taxes. So back to my original question, because we sort of roundabout way, it was like, where's multifamily going? Because taxes are starting to you know, go through the roof, which are making deals not, you can't pencil them like they used to. So is there, we can't just keep going up and up and up. Are we in a world where, 
Dallas and Austin's and San Antonio's and Houston's are are going to be over the next ten, you know, two three decades sub six percent cap rates. Are we ever going to get back to the pendulum swing back to a seven or an eight? Um, yeah, in the market, stabilizing the market. I mean, yes, but not for the reasons you might think. So. Um, the terms of the United States is so big, you can't really talk about United States as a market, right? There's no, you can't. markets like Denver and North Dallas and, and Austin that are overly built, right? There's a lot of new units being released and there's other markets in the country that are still way underbuilt. So uh, um, there are still areas in, the, in this country where you can find those seven and 8%, but they're not gonna be in places you've heard of, right? Um, that, that's one thing. The other thing is, since well, so and, and I, I, well, I'm going to go. I'm talking about true growth markets. Let's exclude the, ter- the tertiary markets because that's high risk. I'm talking about the Dallas downtown, Dallas downtown, Austin downtown, Houston's, where prices have got historically been in the seven and eight percent, and they're now in the sub five. Will they ever get back to that in those markets? Um, exclude, exclude, excluding the, 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 the speculative oil t- towns in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, no, but you also, you say exclude risk, but cap rate is all about risk. Sure. Right? So, so it's always a correlation to the risk. So if you're looking at core MSA, let's say top 30 markets, um, you will continue to buy them at the three, four, five cap rate, but you can take these properties and with the fact that millennials want to rent and people are still moving to the center of the cities and the urban environments become a lot more uh, um, vibrant than Mm -hmm. it used to be in the past. It's not just business uh, 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 oriented downtown, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Then I think rents will continue to grow and demand is going to continue to grow, but your four cap purchase will become a six and a seven over time. So uh, that that's really where I, I think this is going. I also feel that since the the the, the, the regulation D came out in 2012, 2013, a lot of people got into this business, and out of them, uh, the 80-20 rule always work. Right, 80% of them will probably fail. They'll fail an operation. They'll and and in multifamily, I keep telling everybody, you make your money when you buy, but you lose your money on operations. Mm-hmm. That that second half still haven't sunk, uh, uh, and still haven't uh, uh, show raised his head because, like I said earlier, if you buy something that's worth a million for a million two, but the market just shot up since 20, 2009, you're a genius. You could fumble every possible operation decision. And still make a ton of money because rents just went up and up and up and up month over month. Um, but now, anybody that buys now when the market is pretty close to the top, and, and we're seeing some of the properties already back out their, uh, uh, their rent because they pushed it beyond what the market could bear, that is when operation becomes super critical. And efficiency and cost reduction is as important as rent because you can't push rents anymore. Right. No, it's, yeah. it's a good, very good point. Very, very uh, good point. Keep so going, I sorry. feel a lot of, of these operators that have never been taught how to operate and they're not, they're not super efficient at operation. The lack of rent growth is going to cause them to spiral down and lose a property. So I do feel that's just my personal opinion. In the next two, three years, 
we're going to see a lot of distress sales coming up on the market, not because of a market shift, but because of bad operators. No, I think that's a very good, very good uh, point to, 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 to put out to a lot of people. There has been a ton of people in this market in the multifamily space, which has been, it's, it's also caused a lot of frothiness, right? And people paying, I just saw a deal trade for, a 1980s deal trade for a four cap in San Antonio. I was like, who the hell paid that for that? Like, it's just not worth that. Um, and this is a stabilized 90% plus type of deal. I mean, there's value add to be had. People are still trying to make it work. Um, so with all that being, too. what's that? There's other factors though, right? Sure, so, there, 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 there's uh, other factors. Like uh, when you focus on core MSAs, you use your top 30 market. You talk about names of places that are known worldwide. Mm-hmm. The amount of Chinese money and Japanese money and German money that, flow, that, that, that came to uh, uh, Dallas in the last four or five years is incredible. And some people have different agendas than you. You're looking to buy something so you can make good returns for your investors. Uh, some of the Chinese money is just to get the money out of the country. Right. Japanese investors have this weird tax law that says if they buy anything over 20-something years old, they can write it off in three years. I, I, there was a, a transaction recently in Dallas, $30 million, paid cash, three cash. Was it? Yeah, and you bring up a very good point because I want to. I want to go back to, and this is for all the listeners out here. And I'm I'm diving deep on this because we're all talking about cap rates compressing. Um, but both of us, and this is to the listeners, we've come from markets where if you double, and I can personally speak to myself, if you in Australia, we were always taught if you double your money in ten years, that is a real bloody good return. People have been used to, in the last five to six years, doubling their money in three years. We are not in a market where that happens anymore. I just did a two-part series on readjusting investors' expectations. And so how do we compete with the Chinese and the Germans of the world and you know the, the, the big companies coming and scooping them all up? Well, you have to realize that we are if you're buying in core MSAs and you're looking at a 10-year growth period and you're doubling your money in, call it eight to nine years, that's still, a, and you can cash flow a little bit along the way, and, and you're looking at your equity multiple rather than purely cash flow in a top 30 market. That's a really, that's a long-term vision. Things are continue to rise. Rents are going to continue to go up. I don't think I've ever seen insurance rates go down. <laughs> you know, uh, so in the world where insurance is still going to go through the roof, guess what else is still going to go through the roof? Rents. Now, rents are going to, you know, it's, it's like a, it's a, uh, like a plane taking off, going through a bit of turbulence, they may dip a little bit for, but are they going to crash over the long period of time? No, they're not. And the cost of living is going to continue to to rise. Inflation is still going to happen, and people talk about inflation in the market. We're seeing it. The fact that <laughs> rents are going, you know, your car payments going up, your gas is going up, you know, things that other things in the market are, are inflating uh, in and around, not necessarily the, the flat infra, inflation rate that they calculated on. And the reason I say that is that you have to have a long-term mindset. And, and, and Joseph, I, I know that I speak to you when the reason international money comes to this, these, these markets and for, you know, pay silly amounts of money for it is because they have that long-term vision. And then in 10, 15, 20 years, their money is going to quadruple. And they just, they, 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 they're patient. And a lot of investors that probably you and I deal with um, aren't patient, and, and we've lost patience in this game. And it's all, and you've got to remember, it's not get rich quick, but a lot of people have got rich quick in the last three years, and they think that's going to be the norm going forward. And I just really want to drive that home because 
all the factors we've talked about, taxes, you know, um, cap rates, interest cap, you know, all that sort of stuff comes back to the, the point that you're trying to hit a return for your investors that maybe is a little bit inflated based on expectations the last five years. Joseph, any comment? Because I've just, I've just put a lot of, you know, made a lot of statements there. What are, what are your thoughts on that? That was just my two cents. I had to get it off the chest. <laughs> oh, you're absolutely right here. Um, there's no doubt that the last six, seven years have caused some really extreme expectations with uh, investors out there. Um, but... Uh, real estate is a long game. It's not a short term. Uh, and that's why the, the short term mentality is what caused the term cycle to come in. Real mm-hmm. estate is not a cycle. Cycle is something that goes back to zero. But real estate doesn't go back to zero if you look at it as a long term. If you look at a six to 10 year uh, period, yes, real estate goes back to zero. But if you look at it from a longer perspective, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, there's not a single property in the United States that sells today at the same price it was sold in the 80s. It just doesn't <laughs> right. exist, right? Everybody that bought in 2006 at the absolute top were back to zero around 2017, 2018. And the market's still going up, right? You just have to have enough pockets to carry through that downfall, right? Um, right. But the point is that um, if you play a short term, you're gambling. You might or might not hit that, or you might lose a lot more, right? Um, but if you're playing a long game, if you cross the 10-year mark, the chances of you losing money in real estate are not very high. Yeah, I think I'm just writing this down. If you're playing the short-term game, you're gambling. I think that's exactly that's that's exactly right. And you've got to look at it from a long-term point of view. And and both you and I come from markets and in, in countries where, you know, getting a 10% IRR over 10 years is fantastic, you know, and doubling your money. It's it, So getting these 18, 19, 20%, they're great they, if you can get them, but they shouldn't be every single time you hit a step up to the plate and try to take a swing because you're going to you you're gonna start, as you said, you're going to start gambling now and you're going to start losing. And, and we're coming to long in the tooth and the markets are starting to adjust. Um, and so how are you going to prepare for that downturn? And people still want to place capital. So it's, it's very interesting about how, you know different strategies about how people will still want to buy how you buy multifamily, but they've got to we've got to buy in, in growth markets and strong MSAs. Um, with that is low risk, lower risk. So with that is going to have lower return expectations. So things have got to give, right? And it's all about between you and I on this show and, and you talking to your investors, we've got to educate investors about it and get the message out there. So um, so good stuff. Mate, uh, I've been talking to you for nearly an hour. I love it. Um, I want to be really respectful of your time. Uh, I'm ready to dive into the top five investing tips. You want to get, get, get going? Yeah, sounds good. Mate, what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Uh, so really keeping an eye on the ball is, is super important in this business, right? I, I've seen a lot of investors or asset managers that just send over the keys to the property management and try to forget about it and it just doesn't work. So I have a daily report that uh, my admin is generating for all of our properties. It's been sent to me and my partner and to all of the on-site managers and the, the property management regional and so on, uh, where we keep eye on the ball. We're looking at um, factors like what's the vacancy and what's the debt collection and um, how many notices did we get. So we track it on a daily basis. And for me, that's super critical 
to kind of make sure that we don't lose track of it and go to sleep for a few weeks and all of a sudden, wait a second, why are we 5% less in occupancy? What happened? Where did all these mm. people go? Right? Right. So, so that's one thing that we do daily is, is kind of make sure we keep an eye on the ball. Awesome. Love it. And I think, yeah, you're exactly right. Vacancy, debt collection, and, and what you're saying about debt collection is your delinquency, you know, who, who's yeah. behind on rent um, for those people listening. Notices, notices to vacate are a huge thing, particularly multifamily. If you have, if you own a 50-unit property or a 100-unit property and you get 10 tenants coming in saying, hey, I'm, I'm leaving next month, well, crap, you're now you're, 10, you're 90% occupied or if you're at 100%. So you need to go fill that. You need to either try and get them to renew or you got to try and fill them, you know, as it's coming down the line. And we look at that a lot as well. Like what's your renewal rate and what's your exposure coming over? And particularly in the summer, it's always higher than it is in the winter, but something for, for people to take note of. Uh, mate, who has been the most influential person in your career to date? Uh, today? Um, I, oh, just, just in life, who, uh, you know, who, who, who's, who's, been, who's been the most influential? Well, I, I have a few that I kind of collected over the years that I, I've been go-to people, right? When I have a question, I have a, a friend slash peer slash mentor that, that um, have been doing a multifamily for the last decade. And he's had his up and downs. And, and you know, uh, sometimes I call to get advice. Sometimes I call to share some new things that we're doing and, and we're working. And sometimes I just go to vent and, he, you know, he'll go, oh, yeah, this happened to me when I did this or this is how you get out of it. So uh, um, he's probably one of my uh, go-to guys. I also have my business partner, which I uh, talk to almost on a daily basis, kind of. Um, it's important to that. Then that was one of my biggest lessons from, from my uh, first indication is don't do, I did that one alone, soup to nuts. And it was a lot and it was very stressful uh, having a business partner. And I had him since then, right. Since my second syndication to be able to use it as a soundboard and to someone to question your decisions and someone to kind of work through some challenges together and get ideas that might not come across your uh, mind is huge. So um, I, I guess these are the two people that we can talk about. Awesome. No, no, I think that, that, that that's, uh, if you want to give their names and a shout out, then please, please do. But um, if not, that's, that's okay as well. Okay. Um, who's, what is the most influential tool in your real estate business, whether it be software or hardware related? So um, my entire life is in Trello. Uh, ah, nice. T-R-E-L-L-O. Um, it's a website, Trello.com. They have an app. Uh, it's basically a fancy sticky note system. Uh, where you can uh, assign to a team member, you can put a deadline, you can color code it, you can build multiple lists and, and add cards to it. Uh, but really, uh, one of the most important features of that one, that the way I use it is I have a brain dump list. So um, I might be talking to you and then something super critical that I forgot to do or I need to do comes up. I'll say, hey, give me a second. I'll brain dump it into my uh, to sort list, right? And then mm -hmm. I'll continue with what I was focused on. It helps me stay focused on task while not losing track of things, right? So, so that's one of the features I love most about using this tool is that I can brain dump and then circle back to what I'm thinking. And then um, just being able to work with all, all my team is remote. 
So just being able to collaborate with them over this uh, without constant communication and emails is huge because it also keeps track of all the comments back and forth and statuses. Love it. I love it. We use uh, we use Slack, very not as project man- management related, but it keeps things sort of a little bit more organized. Uh, yeah, Trello. Uh, there's another one I've also called, um, I'm going to blank right now, um, Mastersheets Master Sheets is another one. Uh, yeah, smart sheets, smart sheets, I should say, is another one. And Monday.com, there's a few ones out there that, that do some really good stuff. Yeah, we um, use Slack too, but it's more for real time communication, right. uh, a lot less Messaging. for organizing tasks. Exactly. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Mate, what has been, in one sentence, what has been the biggest failure in your career to date and what did you learn from that failure? Um, that's a good question. Um, I probably am a little bit too paranoid. Uh, so, so I don't know if you would call it failure, but I wish I would have um, figured out multifamily over single family a lot sooner. I wish I was uh, buying more aggressively back in 2010, 2011, 2012. Uh, so failing to recognize that we're over the bottom and, and we're shooting up and it's a good opportunity, that's probably the biggest failure um, I can point to. 2020 hindsight, right? It's always it's always the way. I wish, yeah. <laughs> Mate, uh, last question is where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to find out a little bit more about you, what you do, being in your sphere. Where do they go? Yeah, so I'm very visible. If you just Google my name, you'll see all my social media channels and everything. But the best way to find us is to go to our website, uh, ebgtexas.com. Uh, EBG for Eureka Business Group, uh, Texas like the state. So ebgtexas.com. And um, my contact details are there and my phone number, my email. I'm very easy to find. Awesome, mate. Well, look, I want to thank you for dropping in today and just dropping a lot of knowledge bombs on us. I think it was pretty pretty cool. Some of the things I... I took away probably the top three things was hope is not a strategy uh, and, and you know hoping that things are going to go up is, is not a strategy. Um, purchase cap rates are irrelevant if you know what the P&L is supposed to be at where it's at a stabilization and looking at you know year two, year three cap rates uh, in, in over a seven or 10 year hold and, and understanding that's probably more a realistic cap rate of where the asset will stabilize that I think is really important. Uh, and if you're playing the short term, you are gambling. I think that was probably the biggest thing that I took away from today and I think a lot of people are still trying to play the short term get in for two three years and then get out and hope to make a bunch of money and as we're approaching the corner of uh, the, the recession i think that's a pretty risky risky business um but mate did i leave anything out last any any last comments no i, I think you nailed it i think i might repeat just one sentence that i said sure. you make your money when you buy but yes. you lose your money on operations you make your uh, money yes that's super critical Make your money when you buy it and you lose your money. Yeah, 100%. And we could have a whole, I'd love to get you back and talk a lot about getting out of the gate, if that makes sense correctly, once you've bought the asset. And if you have that slow start, it can just constantly play and catch up. But that's for, for another topic, another day altogether. Mate, thank you so much for dropping by. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up soon. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Joseph. Um, if you do want to get involved in any of the stuff he is he's doing, get in his sphere, please head over to egbtexas.com. That's E for Edward, G for George, B for Bravo, texas.com. Sorry, EBG, other way around. Uh, e, for, e for Edward, B for Bravo, G for George, texas.com. Um, and I want to thank you all for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your investing knowledge because that's what we're all about here on this, in this show in teaching you to increase your 
financial IQ. And we're going to do it all again next week. So be bold, be brave, and remember, go give life a crack.